All right, everybody. Hey, how are you? It's Derek here. Welcome to Evil Chat number eight. Uh, this one is with uh, the man Stu again. Uh, it's a good one. I'm really uh, was really happy how it turned out. I think they're getting better and better actually. Uh, but before we get into that, I just want to talk about just a couple things coming up on the site real quick and keep this super short. The first is I am, it is uh, February 14th as I record this and I am in the one, tomorrow will be the midpoint of this ridiculousness, uh, Embrace the Suck that Stu got me into. You won't hear us discuss this because uh, we recorded the podcast today well before he suckered me into this. But I am actually glad to be doing it, uh, getting a lot stronger, getting a lot fitter. Uh, it's, it's torturous, but yeah, it's good. Um, and it supports a great cause. So if you want to help out with the cause, uh, go to fundraiser.com, F-U-N-D-R-A-Z-R.com. Uh, uh, search embrace the suck hashtag embrace the suck on there and you'll find it you can donate um, we have a $15,000 goal uh, we've we've just gone over 4,000 now so we need some help with that so if you can anything I'd really appreciate it coming up on the site real quick uh, is Mike Young he'll be the next one after this one that you're going to listen to now that'll come out next next weekend uh, great interview on mainly youth development training that wasn't uh, that was just one topic but that I had for him but like uh, so many of these it just it went on for quite a while and we had a great discussion on that uh, so good in fact I'm going to bring him back and we're going to do a separate one on eccentrics and velocity-based training. So that's coming up. Um, I got to get some, some throws content on here. Uh, sorry to all the throws, guys. Uh, I hope you've been getting, out of every, you know, getting something out of everything that we've been discussing this far. I'm sure you have. But some, a good throw-specific interview would be great. And nobody better than Don Babbitt to talk about with that. Uh, um, yeah, so I've got that lined up. Uh, he's going to do that when he's at his, uh, SEC indoor championships. Uh, so it'll be interesting. We got a lot to talk about, so that'll be great. And Keba Tolbert, as I said before, is coming up. He'll be after Don at some point. More Stu's coming up. Matt Jordan's coming up. And on that note, uh, don't forget, I mentioned this in the, before in the intro to the Les Spellman podcast, uh, with Matt, go to jordanstrength.com uh, and take advantage of his new courses. I'm taking a bunch of them. They're really good. Uh, really good, actually. I love his stuff. It's just great. Well presented. Uh, tons of great information there. And if you buy any of his courses uh, through, uh, through the month of February, you get a free sprint bundle from eviltracksport.com. Okay? Great. All right. So... Without, I don't really need to do too much of an interview with Stu, do I? Uh, or about Stu, um, because you've I've, you've heard me talk about him, so I'm just going to let that run. Uh, uh, does, as I said, it doesn't come through in here, but I'm really not happy with him for getting me into this embrace the suck thing because it's really, it, it really sucks. So, anyways, enjoy the podcast. All right, for better or for worse, here is my third evil chat with. Stu McMillan. Well, I've, I've got them on min minimal right now. Ready? Three, two, one. Okay, great. Good job. 
Well, that just gives me a, a, a general area to... Yeah, see, this is why we are not musicians and, and are instead coaches. We can't even find the no two shit. seconds apart on our, on our clap. Yeah, no kidding. So, yeah. Hey, so uh, feedback was pretty good from, uh, from, the first, from the release of the first talk that we did. So this is, what, our third now, right? And we're getting into some pretty heavy stuff now. But the first one was just released. I'll release the second one in a, in a week or two, but probably about two, three weeks. So by the time people will, hear... Will there be uh, one or two in between each one? Or is this yeah, just one or kind two of a, in between. A well, I'm not giving series. everybody the okay. good stuff right away. I got to hold back a little bit. The good stuff, quote unquote. Here's, uh, I got a text from Andreas this morning. Andreas is, um, you know, our hurdles coach, VP performance, mm -hmm. one, one of the owners of Altus. So he, he listened um, at his workout this morning. Uh, his first text to me was, Derek really asked you if your name is spelled S-T-E-W. And then he's got the little funny face emoji. I said, yep, he's a moron. <laughs> that was intentional. And then <laughs> That was intentional. Come on. Yeah. And then his second text was, he also just rambled for the first 15 minutes. I almost turned it off, I LOL. Know. I know. I know. That's my problem. That's my problem. And I'm, and I'm working on it. And there's this guy, Alain, Alain, Alain. Uh, PJ would be upset with me if I didn't pronounce his name right. I'm not sure exactly where he is. It might be in Belgium, but he's a former distance runner. But this guy has been giving me the best feedback on these things. And he's like, does not hold back. He's like you, right? He's like, he's got this way of giving very direct, precise feedback without offending you, right? Because I get so easily offended, right? Which is bullshit, actually. <laughs> I, I actually have pretty thick skin. But he's very good, and so he's, and that's one of the things he sent me. A, uh, after he listened to our, um, our number three, the first chat that you and I had, he said the sound is really good. He really appreciates that, and he appreciates some. You said the intro was a bit long, and yeah, I know the intros are going to be much shorter from this point forward. Um, but, uh, you know, he said, yeah, one thing is I tend to ramble on, and then, you know, the more I ramble on, the further I get away from the topic. So, yes, anyways. But I yeah, do but want I mean, these I, to I be think, more of a discussion than just an interview. Go ahead. I'll let you Right. Talk. I mean, that's, 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 that's how you converse, right? That's how you have conversations with people. Your, your, your brain is definitely pretty abstract, right? Yeah. You, don't, you don't get on one topic and then you exhaust this one topic and sequentially move on to the next topic. You're, you know, as you're, you know, this, is, this is why I find the conversations that we have really interesting, right? Because they're kind of wide ranging. And uh, who's, you know, who set the rules of a conversation saying we have to just stick to this one topic and then exhaust it and then move on to the next one? That's, I don't feel like that is how a real conversation generally goes, especially not, not one with me, definitely not with you anyway, yeah. right? Definitely not the one with you. So if this is going to be a, a true, authentic sort of fly on the wall conversation between you and whoever you're talking to and not just a straight up Q&A then this is how it's got to be, right? You can, you can, you can only be you. You're, you're, you're 65 now, is that what you are? 66? Pardon so me? It's, um, no, I was born in 65. <laughs> I'm 55 years old, motherfucker. And you knew that. So My, my point is, you're, it's, you're not going to change now. Is. Yeah, yeah. Yep. All right, yep. all right. 
And uh, it's, it's, <sighs> it's uh, I, I know you've talked about this before too, right? But it's, um, you know, I don't think enough respect is paid and enough people really know about the history of sort of sport performance podcasts and where this all started. And for you and even for, you know, the entirety of the field, it kind of started with you in Edmonton in the mid O's, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. And I know you I did so. talk about that briefly, yeah. right? But very briefly, it's, it's, I don't know if anyone else was doing, you know, the quality of work that you guys are putting together and putting out, you know, online to the, to the entire sort of population. We, we, earlier than that, right? Yeah. Definitely no one was doing it as well as you guys were. Well, you know, that's all Kevin, right? Like, I mean, that, that, that's all Kevin's leadership because how, how that actually started, and I won't go down a long rabbit hole, so don't everybody shit themselves now that I'm going to talk about this. But anyways, is, you know, I basically took that job having no clue what I was going to do. And um, he just wanted me up there because he thought I could add value to so anyway, so I would walk into work every day and I was listening to this podcast on science. And this is in the first few weeks, two weeks I was working there. And I was walking in and I walked in one day and I had my headphones on. I walked right at his office used to be right at the front door and I walked right in there and I was got all excited. I thought, you know, I thought, geez, somebody should do this with coaching. Like somebody should do this with methodology and coaching and all of that. And, and I went in there and I said, Hey, can I do this? He went, yeah, absolutely. That's great. Yeah, yeah, go. So I went out and bought a mic and a recorder that day, wrote the first script. It was the adaptation one and off we went. And, uh, but you know, we were a bit, I would say we're, you know, we were actually probably too ahead of the curve because people weren't ready to, like they weren't really ready to pay for streaming content then. They still wanted something in their hands. So for instance, we, we did all of these um, conferences where we filmed everything, just like I do now. Um, nobody bought any of it because it was all, it was, this was quality content. This is, a, this is Dan at his best, a lot of these. This is Boo Schechnader at his best, you know, like Jerry Ramajita at his best. And all of this stuff was up there and very little of it sold because people just were not ready to do that. And 10 years, now they are. Now they, they love it, right? And people, people you know, they've, they've come around, but they, they weren't ready for it back then. So, so that was what, a bit What of happened it. to all of the audio content from back then? So what happened to those podcasts? I know that obviously we them. bought all of the video. Yeah, no, we've got the video. We don't have the audio. So oh, we bought all the video I content that exists up on Altus 360. You've got the audio? Yeah. Do you want it? Yeah. <laughs> I have all of it. <laughs> I have all of it. I, I have, uh, I, yeah, no, I have all that audio. I have every single interview I did. In fact, I have multiple copies. Tom Crick for Christmas once gave me, uh, I'll never forget this. He said, hey, I got a Christmas gift for you. It was, I don't know, it was, it was a parting gift when we left the UK. And he met me in a place with his car and he walked up to me and said, here, and he handed me this stick and turned around and walked away. And I was like, what's this? And I opened it up and it's every single bit of content that I've ever done, I ever did at the CACC and every single bit of content that he ever did, I probably shouldn't be saying this, uh, with you coach all on this massive stick. And uh, so anyways, I, so a lot of it, I, most of it I have, if I haven't, you know, lost or ruined it. No, that's but good. Yeah. yeah, yeah good, so. good for Tom. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Hey, listen, um, I hate to do this to you, but I, st yeah. you know, you know, the, yeah, 
the question the question that we revisited at the beginning of last the, our last discussion you know and uh, you know i i take responsibility for you know whatever misdirection we've gone with this because i don't think i actually i think i actually did answer it not too bad the first time but i also um you know i think there's more to it i think your i i I think that's a really good question you asked. I think it goes to the heart of uh, which, which, which is this, the question. This is the question about you know how deep do you go and and what's the danger of it, right? Like, and you originally were talking about mechanics, like how far down do do you know does a coach need to go or or what's the you know do you, I think your question was do you think there's a danger of being too analytical? And I think the context you were discussing it in is was in you know uh, um, trying to fix too too many small things that just don't matter, right? That just in the big scheme of things just don't matter, and you're wasting time, right? And then my answer to that was, well, it's important to to know it and to understand all of it, but you have to control the output to the athlete. And then in the in the second podcast or in the second discussion, we revisited that and talked about it again. But one thing we didn't talk about either, and this will be the last time I bring this up, is, you know, like, how deep is necessary, right? Like, we talked in, you know, about um, uh, simplicity on the other side of complexity or mastery being simplicity on the other side of complexity. So obviously, you know, if you want to be, if you want true mastery of this, of uh, let's say you know uh, understanding a sport movement if we're talking just mechanics um you know you do i i think you do it really does help to really understand it as deep down as you can but you absolutely need to control the output you talked about tom telez and all of you know uh, his genius in that way but the obvious question to me then because remember a lot of this i i come to from the developmental coach's perspective, right? So, and in, in the second podcast that I did, not the second one you and I talking about, but the one that I called the expert, I talk about, you know, how I define developmental coaching, um, high performance coaching and elite coaching, right? Because I, I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I think there should be a distinction between high performance and elite. Elite is the very, very, very best, right? So, and I talk about that, so I don't need to go over that too much. But I think you kind of, you know, we're probably in alignment there on that, right? Um, but how deep, how deep do you need to go? We can use mechanics as an example because I think we talked a lot about, you know, the 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 different the different uh, motor abilities before in, in this regard. But like if, let's say if we're talking mechanics now, like how deep do you need to go at any one of those levels? What do you think? Like how deep is necessary? <laughs> why? Oh fuck. Now you're laughing at me because here you're why I know you're laughing at me because you think I just did exactly what I said I wasn't going to do. Aren't you? Is that why you're laughing at me? I would never say that. You and a laugh. Yeah, and, and Andreas. And, and yeah. Andreas. Well, the three of you can, can so, kiss my ass. Well, I mean, the first one you rambled only for 15 minutes. This one, I think, was only 14 or 13. So you're getting better. The question is out there. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it, it's, 
I was actually having a conversation with Les Spellman yesterday, uh, who's doing a great job with, with the athletes he works with out in San Diego, uh, mostly football guys, but some rugby and some other athletes. I'm dying and, to talk um, Yeah, no, smart guy, man. Like, just good, deep thinker, really doing some good work. And we were having this conversation, right? And this was, you know, I think back to when I was a younger coach, and I took so much pride in how the athletes I was coaching did drills, for example, right? And how right. much better the athletes that I was working with, how much better their drills were than Coach Billy across the track. Or we'd go to a competition and I'd look at all these drills and say, man, imagine how much better all these athletes could be if their drills were better. I see a rabbit you know? hole coming up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. no, I, and I'm not going to go down the drill rabbit hole. I was just saying, well, we like, will I put so much focus... Yeah, for sure. But I put so much f focus on, on you know, perfecting how they moved. And I think I lost sight of what was really, truly important. And, you know, what I was talking to Les about yesterday, I didn't really see um, how, on the grand scheme of things, how unimportant some of that stuff is until I got to a truly elite level and got out onto the international circuit and started watching elite movers. And no matter how you define it, Usain Bolt is an elite mover. And Tyson Gay is an elite mover. And Asafa Powell is an elite mover. And Christian Coleman is an elite mover. And you can pull apart the way that they move, specifically and technically, but they're the top of their sport. And by every definition, they are elite. And I'm just watching a lot of these guys warm up. And, and it's just... You know, I, I, I begin, you know, by, by first year or so, I say, man, this is sloppy, you know? Like, the first time I'm really, truly on the international circuit was two, 2010, right? So, in 2010, I've, I've, I've got some elite guys, and I'm just watching across the track at all these really elite guys move, and I'm just blown away by the sloppiness and how they warm up. There's, like, coaches aren't really paying attention. They're not really being intentional with, the, with their warm-ups or how they move. And, and you know, if you take a big picture of you, and, I, if I, you know, and it took me, like I said, you know, a little bit more maturity, I think, to back up to 30,000 feet and ask some really hard question of, um, questions of myself. Are these athletes over here, are they generally healthier than the athletes that I work with? Are they generally, do they... You know, are, are the athletes, oh, sorry, the, the vice versa, are the athletes I work with generally healthier than these athletes who seemingly don't take, you know, place as much importance on mechanics as what I do and what we do, and, you know, and place as much importance on the can warm-up and I, how they warm Can I pause you as, as for I a second? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. when you say sloppy, give, give me an example of that. Are you, are you saying that they, they're just like they're – you know they're just not hitting the positions that you would that you would want your athletes to see doing this the same type of activity in the, these warm-ups so they're doing sloppy a drills and sloppy accelerations yeah, right or, the, 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 go ahead no go ahead if there's an oh, well or, i mean is it just drills we're talking about or is it or are they sloppy when they're doing well the that's, that, i mean that's that that's that that's the crux right that's the crux of the question so it, it, it started off with, with drills, you know, you know, going back 20 years, 25 years or whatever to the sort of start of my, uh, you know, um, coaching career, um, in track anyway, was, 
was was drills, right? And I put I place so much importance upon these component parts and making all these component parts look and feel super pretty with great postures and great shapes and you know great patterns and rhythms and blah blah blah, right? And then I the, the same sort of thing when you know fast forward 15 years in 2010, and I'm watching now the elite movers. These aren't just provincial you know Canadian provincial kids running 11 seconds, um, you know male 100 100 meter guys. These are now the best in the world, and it's the same, right? It's just, it's sloppy in every definition of sloppy. Like the posture is not good, the shapes aren't good. They're not really thinking about the things that we would typically think are important to, um, to elite movers in, in the sport of, of track and field. However, when they get out and they actually put on spikes and they get into the race, are they sloppy? Is Usain Bolt a sloppy sprinter? You know, is, is Asafa Powell a sloppy sprinter? Are these guys sloppy? actual sprinters no right all of them are just are really really good mechanically excellent you know christian coleman mechanically excellent most elite sprinters are really really technically excellent so it just it made me question the amount of effort energy time space room i gave to really going deep into these you know into the importance of technique and i don't think and I'm not saying for a second that technique is not important. It is. But it, it made me, you know, it was my first real in-depth analysis of, or my first opportunity to take a real in-depth analysis of my own systems and start questioning the relative importance of some of these things. And I'd moved on from... Um, from the initial thoughts where drills, you know, I gotta have these beautiful drills to, and, and I still thought that I had to have beautiful drills, you know, and I, we still place importance on having nice drills, and, but everything, every single part of the entire process needed to be perfect, mm -hmm. right? And it's, um, there. you know, you're a part of this, right? So we were, we were all over in the UK, and all of the coaches that were over there, or many of the coaches that were, were already over there, we were seen as the quote-unquote scientific coaches, right. right? We were the science guys. Right. You know, Dan, myself, you, Kevin, you know, uh, uh, Jonas, uh, Steve Fudge, you know, some, some of the other guys are sort of mentored uh, under, 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 you know, the, the, the mentor coaches that were there, sort of Dan and you and a few others at the time. We were the science guys. And there was this bit of a, you know, almost a, you know, it was those guys, the old school guys and us. And I feel like that rather than thinking about this being a bit of a, um, you know, a dichotomy between the old school guys and the, and the science guys, there's a, and, and these, that the old school guys needed to learn something from us. There was a bit of an ignorance, I think, on some of our parts on what we could learn from them. Totally. Where if you, and if you take, we talked, we talked about this, I think in the last conversations, right? Where you take a holistic view or reductionist view. So you can take this sort of re reductionist view of looking at each component part and trying to, you know, really, really, um, you know, identify all of the, you know, uh, potential weaknesses of each component part, increase the strengths of these component parts under the assumption that when they all come back together, they've got this fantastic whole. Or Where that in and of itself, coaches, will, they will come back together all on their own. Right, 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 right. Where the old school coaches may not necessarily have a lot of sort of understanding or specialist understanding of any of those component parts 
But what they did know is they had a really good understanding of the objective and the purpose, which was basically running fast. And they kind of knew, sometimes intuitively, sometimes not necessarily as intuitively, that how to get all of those pieces aligned in the right way at the right time to, to produce a great performance. Right? And it's, I had this conversation, I think, on, a, on another podcast, and I can't remember who it was with. It might have been Rob Pacey's uh, podcast. But by many measures of what you would uh, judge the, um, the, the, the quality of a coach by, you know, and, and if you look at uh, Cote and Gilbert's work on, on coach expertise, for example, if you look at many of those things, a coach like Glenn Mills would fail at most of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't be judged an elite coach by, you know, I'm just throwing out a number, 18 of the 20 different criteria oh, so in which would you judge an elite coach by. So would Vondrachuk. So, same would Vondrachuk yeah. be, right? Same would be many elite coaches. But you can make a really strong argument that Glenn Mills is the greatest sprint coach of all time. Right. Because he coached Usain Bolt, mm -hmm. who's got nine Olympic gold medals. So it's it's it's... And then rather than the quote-unquote scientific coaches kind of looking down upon Glenn Mills and saying, man, you know, it's, uh, yeah, he doesn't know this, he doesn't know that, he doesn't know this, he doesn't know that. Well, he knows what the most important thing is, and that's to get this guy that he's been working with to run fast at the right time. Which, is, which sometimes means and, just knowing what not to do again, right? It's, you know, knowing when not to interfere. Although I, that's a little – that – is a little bit different, I think, from what you were talking, or it's one part of what you were just talking about. So let me let me tell you about Bonnerchuk. So there, I mean, there's probably nobody as far as a coach. There are some biomechanists out there who have studied the hammer in all of its technical glory. Let's say, uh, Jesus uh, De Pena as one. I mean, the stuff that guy's put out is just. So, you know, amazing, very, very valuable stuff. But Bonnerchuk has written a lot of deep stuff about hammer technique, okay? So it's not like, I, I mean, I don't know much about Mills. I don't know if he's, what he's written about training or technique or anything like that. But when you look at Bonnerchuk, he, he actually, you know, you can go and find a lot of stuff that he's written about the hammer that make, makes it very, very clear that he understands at a very deep level, at a very masterful level, how hammer mechanics and technique works, okay? Um, in fact, he is credited with a shifting um, the, the way the hammer was taught in the 70s. To, there was a, you know, it was a new, it became the new way of thinking, right? Um, but you watch him coach, and you would never, ever, believe that and it, this is and you know part now my experience with watching him coach and being and coaching with him is of course you, you know one one I mean I'm English I speak English he's Russian he he has issues with communication but it's way beyond that he is so simple with the way that he cues and 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 um the way that he cues athletes and the way that he teaches uh, and I would say that, you know, this is another thing, you know, there's a difference between being a good, great coach and a good teacher. Bonnerchuk is not a great teacher, the, the way the way that we the way that we would define a teacher. And 
so when you talk about the hammer, he will sit there and, you know, his, his hammer coaches know, know where I'm going with this because, you know, he'll sit there and say, push, must push, must push the hammer. That's his big thing, right? And I talked to him about this one day. I said to him, you know, well, what, what, like, you know, Dr. B, there's got to be more to it than this, you know. And he just looked at me and he said, the body will find its way. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And, you know, and even still, you know, I was still, you know, it, it's learning. And then, you know, then this is way back when he was first in Kamloops. And then, then as I, I really started to get deep into the hammer mechanics when I was in Britain and coaching Sophie and Mark and, and, and then uh, the girls back in Canada. And then it all started to make sense to me, right? Like I started to put it all together once I got deep enough down there to go back and look at it now. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, but that's, that's how he coaches. He's like, he doesn't, he's not, you know, he, you know, a, yes, he has a language when he's talking, when he's coaching North American or Western athletes, there is a language issue there, but that's just one small part of it. The, a lot of it is he just, he just, just doesn't want to give too much to the athlete and he will, yeah, well, I mean, that goes back to sort of what we were talking about, right? With the you know, simplicity on the other side of complexity or right. informed simplicity. He, he has an in-depth understanding and knowledge base of all of the technical components of how to throw a, throw a hammer and probably has a really in-depth understanding of how to coach that as well. Right, but, but, has, but he understands, like you said, what to throw away. Right. And what to now just communicate and what to allow, but or, the or but the comment the comment he made to me I think is really important, right? He he respects the athlete's ability to figure it out themselves, right? Based yeah. upon a, 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 I mean, push the hammer. That's about as global a cue. The, I mean, the only cue that you could give a hammer thrower that's more simple is throw further. Seriously, yeah. right? Okay, yeah. and so. You know, I just found that that was one of those aha moments for me when he said that. I mean, he was dead serious when he said this to me. He looked at me and he, you know, he has this way where, you know, and, and it was like, it was kind of like, it, it was kind of like he was holding back his English up until that moment. And he said in perfect English to me, he goes, the body will find its way, Derek. <laughs> And I was like, okay, he would, you know, there's so it's, you know, there was so much in that. Right. So, but you know, yeah, no, absolutely. It's, um, and what kind of what I was getting at was, you know, the opposite of that, right. I found myself and I see this in other coaches as well, where, you know, if you're, if you're a, you know, a coach that thinks at any sort of depth, or you know, and, and not even a coach. Like if you're just a person that kind of thinks, you know, you're maybe you're you're somewhat intelligent. You know, somewhat intelligent people are are more susceptible to overanalyzing things. Generally, yeah. right? And then this it can trick you into thinking that you should be overthinking and calculating everything that we do. And you know, it's that's you know, I've I've seen for example coaches that. It almost seems from the outside that they would rather their athlete look good and perform poorly than look bad and perform well. That that becomes Absolutely. the measure of success to them. That they're more important to, and that's all comes from me. From you know, and, and I, I you know I don't know if I've ever been there, 
But that comes from an insecurity, right? Like, let me show you how smart I am as a coach. Let me show you, the, this is what movement should look like. Look at my athletes. Right. Look how great and technical and mechanical and perfect they look. Yeah. And, you know, if they don't perform well, that's on them. Or they're not very good, right? Yeah. But at least they look great. And if you could learn from me. And if you guys, you know, move the way that my guys did. And, and I just feel wow, like, man, you, know, you just hit you just hit it on the head just, there, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I went through that. I went through that. I th I, th yeah. I think a, I think a lot of coaches go through that. You know, that's it's, you know, insecurity on 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 both sides, right? You know, they're, and and, uh, yeah. I mean, I I went through that big time. Right now, I, I don't worry too much about it at all. In fact, I don't, you know, and the and the, and the hammer is a really interesting event, to to uh you know as an example of this okay it's different than the other events i say this all the time the hammer people listening to this will know will will have heard me say this before the hammer is closer to the pole vault in in some respects mechanically than it is to the other events and the reason for that is because those are really and i'm being sort of gross in my analysis here but but bear with me for a sec. But the 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 hammer and the pole vault are the the only two events in athletics where not only do you have to put force into something, usually the ground or an implement, right? But you also have to deal with forces coming back at you. Okay. Now I, I understand that when you put force into the ground, there's force that comes back. But I'm talking about something else. I'm talking about an external force. In the hammer, it's the pull of the ball. Because as the ball starts to gain speed, it creates pull. And then that's a whole issue you have to deal with. In the pole vault, it's the, it's the, you know, it's the energy that you store into the pole when it bends. And then when that, when that releases, when the pole starts to straighten, that's, that's a force that the athlete, it's an additional external force that the athlete has to deal with. Okay. You understand what I'm saying, right? You don't get that in distance running or sprinting or, you know, okay. So that has a big impact on, I mean, at least to me it does, on how you manage drill work. Because in the hammer, if you don't have that pull to some degree, then you're not really throwing the hammer. And if you do a lot of drills without a hammer and you don't have that pull, let's say you, you have a stick in your hand and you're doing footwork. Now for beginners, that's really good. But I see people drill the, sh dr you know, uh, high performance athletes that drill the shit out of their hammer throwers uh, without a hammer in their hand, doing all kinds of funky, really interesting exercises and drills in order to get this, you know, perfect. We're going to perfect this technique. And in most events, it could be just a waste of time, right? But in the hammer, and I would argue as well, I'm sure some pole vault coaches would argue this as well, uh, that it's the same in that event, is that it actually, you're doing damage. You're, you're, actually, you're actually doing some negative uh, learning in terms of trying to teach the mechanic because you can't actually get, you can't actually do a ghost drill in the hammer and get into the position you need to get into where force is mostly applied. That is when the hammer is at the bottom of the of the orbit it's closest to the ground that's where the most pull is because you'll fall on your ass without the pulling of the hammer you can't get you know unless you tie a string to a to the floor and do it right so a lot of people will you know in an effort to 
make that perfect technique and that you know and so i say to them all the time you know smooth just because the hammer looks smooth in a thrower doesn't mean it's effective technique like there's all kinds of throws out there that look smooth and the rhythm looks good doesn't mean it's effective yeah it's so yeah i just want to jump in there real quick so that's that's a really important point um you know, smoothness and rhythm and coordination and where does that come from and, and, and the importance of that for elite movers in any sport, right? It's, it's, I don't know anything about hammer, so, so forgive me if I'm speaking out of my ass, but it's, if, it, it feels to me like the best movers in any sport are the most rhythmical, coordinated, you know, smoothest, whatever it is, and where does that smoothness come from? So if I'm, as a coach, having a five-minute conversation with an athlete after every run or every performance or whatever the skill it is that where I'm trying to teach them, how can I possibly expect the next repetition to be rhythmical or smooth or coordinated? Because now I've given them five minutes of information. Right. There's a less is more effect there, right? Where uh, you know, less information can lead to way more accurate judgment. Mm -hmm. Because if I've given them more information, it's just, it's clouded everything and they have to filter all of this stuff in their own brain and trying to figure out what makes sense to them and if they're trying to do this while they're moving that just we're never going to see true coordinated smooth movement mm -hmm. so i think that's where a lot of this comes from with coaches who don't are not quote unquote technical coaches or scientific coaches they do what you said what bondachuk does push the hammer mm -hmm. drive your knees up mm -hmm push back push back yeah fast feet whatever it is like whatever that cue is and they focus only on that one or two different you know it goes back to our our, our discussion about systems you know it, minimizing the number of component parts in the system will make a system more um uh, reliable uh, you'll be able to more predictable, predictable. more reliable that's it. right so if if there's a, if the athlete's got two or three or four things to think about and that's it and those are the first, the only two or three or four things that they think about for 10 years, yeah. that athlete's going to be pretty smooth, yeah. you know? Yeah. But, if those, if, but if they're 10 things, and the next cycle it's another 10, and the next cycle it's another 10, and then, you know, every year they got 50 or 60 different things, and that's, there's no consistency, how can we expect any consistency in the performance? Mm -hmm. So it's, let, me, um, let, me, let me just you know, share one, one real quick story again about the hammer, because it ties right into what you just said and, and what we've been thinking of. When I first met Bondarchuk, it was in... 2003 after the world champs he did this i think i might have talked about it before i'm not sure anyways he was doing this clinic in uh in uh, shabate i think that's how you pronounce it hungary and i we went there and a bunch of americans went there it was the first time he had given a clinic in over a decade right and so i mean this is a big big deal the iaaf was hosted murufushi was there the the world hammer final was there and it, and it was a clinic right after it. I mean, it was a big deal for hammer coaches and he gave a bunch of lectures there and Sadiq was there and Sadiq gave, uh, Sadiq gives the most amazing technical instruction in the hammer. It's so simple. If you can ever, any hammer people out there, if you find any of the videos online, it's, they're all about an hour long. It's him in a circle with a stick talking about the hammer. It's amazing. So he was doing one of these. Half the coaches in this crowd have produced some of the top throwers in the world, okay? So it's not like, I mean, these are good, good coaches. And there was an American coach there. And, you know, after Sadiq goes through this hour-long thing about it, and he, you know, people are asking questions, this guy puts up his hand, and he asked the most complicated 
question. I mean, it's just, I remember sitting there going, I can't even, I don't need, have no clue what you just asked. Like it was just, you know, blah, went on and on. And it doesn't matter what it was about, but Sadiq just looked at him and he went, and, and he had been growing more and more frustrated with some of the questions because people wanted deeper answers to what he did, right? Because Sadiq is, you know, he's, he's probably the best technical model, I, I would say, for sure in the throws in probably all field events that we have next to maybe a couple of pole vaulters. Shella Zoxen is one guy that Dan uses a lot. But, I mean, his technique is it's – it's virtually flawless in, in, in many ways relative to a lot of other tours. So anyways, so but people wanted deep answers. They wanted, they wanted reductionism in his answers, right? They want, well, how do you, you know, what about this? What about this knee angle? And did you ever think about, you know, doing this? And, and he just, this, so this guy has this question and he just goes, he gets frustrated. He goes, he, he goes, look, he goes, that's, that's not how I thought about it. All I ever thought about was, this is what he says. <laughs> he goes, and right there, you know, uh, and, and that stayed with me because, because that's how Bonderchuk taught it. And Bonderchuk was his coach. Bonderchuk was like, push, 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 you know, push, push, push. And Sadiq was just like, and he wasn't trying to blow the guy off. He was telling him that that's all I thought about was pushing hard. Yeah, three you're times. thinking about the wrong stuff. Yeah, yeah. Done. Well, it was, you know, yeah. and then he go, and then, you know, he goes on to talk about, you know, there's a video or a, a presentation where he talks about being a waltz, a dance, you know, so you, you can imagine how, yeah. you know. And I, a lot of, in talking with a lot, these are, there's a whole bunch of, about a dozen American coaches there. And afterwards, they were all like, oh, yeah, he's hiding something. And, you know, there's got to be more. And I can tell you, there isn't. It's just the way he thinks about it. And it's just, you know, and it, it's, it's for us to sort that out. But trying to reduce it isn't going to, you know, isn't going to help you. So I guess, I guess we could wrap that whole thing up in one way of saying, you know, how, how deep is necessary? Well, I guess it's how, as deep as you, you, you need to go. Yeah, I mean, but that's not, that's not the answer, is it? Well, <laughs> um, it depends. How much of a reductionist are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. I, 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 you know, you mentioned uh, Koji there, right? right. So, um, do you know much about Koji's training? A little bit. Yeah, I mean, because that would be very different from what you're talking about with what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Like Koji seems like, you know, there's a lot of different component parts, a lot of different isolationist work, a lot of drills in Koji's work, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different unique creative little move, uh, weight room movements that he does in his training. That's really interesting. However, that guy is super smooth, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? He's a, he's a smooth mover. He's really yeah, rhythmical. But that seems is. to come from a di very different way than, say, a, a Sadiq. Or... Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, not to get into hammer technical models, um, if by, you know, by some of the benchmarks and standards, that one model might measure Sadiq's technique by Koji doesn't hit him quite as well as Sadiq does. Um, he's but that's yeah, that's not what I'm saying though. Like if you look at both of them and their smoothness right. level, you know their non-jerkiness. His, ryth his rhythm is right off the chart. The rhythm is beautiful, yeah. right? But it comes from a different place because because Koji is a drill guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you but know? is, so is um, would it not? Yeah, but how do we know that the drills? I mean, how do we know that the drills are causing that smoothness. 
How do we know they're they're not? Well, they're, we don't. We don't, know, right? How do we, we know we, that we, that coach is not just wasting his time? And I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm not saying he is at all. I don't think he is. I mean, coach, he's a pretty yeah. brilliant dude, and his coach is fantastic as well. Um, Tor, but it, it's but I mean, I think a lot of that's driven with by coach. I mean, coach is sort of does yeah. his own his own thing that way. But he, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying, you know, if, with anyone, how do how do we know? We know, I mean, Dan Lang is another well, is another great hammer coach who does a ton of drills, and. Um, with, with the hammer so you know i mean how, how do we know that we, we don't but well i think we do and this, that's my point right how do we the, know the that? point is it's it's um you know koji is really analytical guy like he's really into it you know he's a deep thinker super creative but very structured you know really analytical and i think with a brain like his you can do that type of work you can have lots of different component parts in your system because he needs all of that creativity to keep him engaged mm -hmm. where you know if you're if you're not as as creative as that if you don't have that creative brain with multiple parts all all operating simultaneously going in multiple directions and you try to sit fit that system into it you're just no. you're never going to make sense really of all of the interactions you know what I mean? No, no. So I've got athletes that, for example, are really structured. They're just, they want boom, 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 boom. And there's no creativity. They're just not creative people, right? And other people who are super creative people that require coaching in a totally different way. Mm -hmm. You know, so one of the questions that are, I always ask them is, would you rather do two exercises 10 times or 10, ex 10 exercises two times? And that gives me some insight into their in how their brain works, right. right? If they, if it's two exercises 10 times, then that tells me how to coach them right, right away. They like work, right? They, they like, yeah. They, they, yeah, exactly. If they want 10 exercises two times, like Koji, they think about that it. tells me a lot about, right. they think That's about it. They're super good, analytical. Yeah. They're super creative. That's really interesting. Yeah. Right. But you also, also have to understand that just because this person is this way now, doesn't necessarily mean that that's the way that we have to coach them at every in every opportunity or every time, you know, so I've, I've made that mistake a bunch of times, you know, it's, I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. So Amir Webb, uh, American hundred meter, 200 meter guy that, that I work with. So his breakout year was 2016 and he went over to, um, his first, he, he'd opened up here and he'd ran a, a windy 991 and a, a legal 1990. And because of how fast he ran, he got a lane in uh, the first Diamond, Diamond League of the year, which was in Doha. Now, Andreas was going to Doha with Aries, so there was no point in two coaches uh, from, from the group going over with just two athletes. So uh, uh, Andreas went over. I didn't go over. Andreas is there with Aries and Amir as well. And I just talked to Amir about what his tactics are for how to run this 200 meters. And we, we worked on this a lot, right? A lot in training. I spoke with him the day of the race and we went just, re, you know, debriefed what the tactic is. And it's, it's sort of a sprint, sprint, float, sprint, right? It's a 40 meter really hard. It's a float through the middle of the, of the bend. It's accelerate off the bend and does it destroy people coming off the bend? And that was the word that I used, so just destroy. And then just, you know, just try and hang on. And he's, he sent me after the race and he, he won the race and he ran 1985, right? Or 1984, I think, something, something like that. He sent me this piece of paper after the race. I've still got it. I'll send it to you. And it's, it's, a, it's a picture of a track with these phases written into it. <laughs> you know, 
uh, hard accelerate, float, destroy, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Yeah. And then at the end, win. You know, and this, which is exactly, it, I mean, it was just, it was beautiful. And it set up perfectly for his brain at that time yeah. with me not being there, right? He had a plan. He had a, he had a strategy in place that he could, that he's, that he's, uh, he's kind of worked on over and over in training. This was nothing new. He went there and just, you know, did, did great under those circumstances. Now, in other circumstances, that was too much for him. You know, we talked about this. And, you know, for, I'll give you a more re recent example, um, similarly, but with a different person. So uh, Jody Williams, uh, British 200-meter sprinter, I've worked with for, you know, six years now, five years. It's the same tactic. Her, she's, there's, there's only two ways to run a 200. You either run the bend in a buildup or you run a sprint, sprint, float, sprint. But the goal is always to run from 90 to 120 as fast as you possibly can. So the end of the bend, you need to be rolling. And come off the bend and sort of slingshot onto the straightaway faster than everybody else. That's the goal, right? So you either do that as a long extended buildup around the first 90 meters, or you do a 40 to 50 meters uh, acceleration, and then a float through the middle, and then re-accelerate. Um, and depending on who we were racing, what time of the year, who the individual is, it could be a mixture, you know, so early in the season it might be one, later in the season it might be another. Well, with Jody it was always, uh, and initially it was a sprint float sprint, and we sort of changed that over the course of time for it to become more of a, a build-up, you know, because she prefers to chase. Right. So it's just a slightly easier, more gradual acceleration, and then that allows her to chase people, and that just, that to just fit her personality a bit better. So we're in Doha last, you know, 2019 for the World Championships, and we're talking about the strategy. She's going into the semifinal. We've got a really good, I thought we had a really good opportunity for her to, to medal there in 2019. Uh, you know, a lot of the, the top girls weren't running the 200. Uh, and in hindsight, if she'd ran what she was capable of, she probably would have medaled there. Um, but we overanalyzed that race to such an extent in the semifinal. We talked about the tactics to such an extent in that specific scenario okay, here's an opportunity that I have as an athlete to make this final. And, you know, it's my, my first major championship final. And I've even got an opportunity to medal because X, Y, and Z aren't here. So I, I did not see the increase in the anxiety that was going through, that was, you know, in this environment at that time. And all I'm doing is feeding adding, into, adding more into more and more and more, right. adding into more, right? And, and rather than just what, what the message should have been is just go race. Yeah. You know, that's simple. Just go race. Yeah. And and take away everything else that we've been working on for four or five or six years and just all right, just trust your stuff. You're in here with seven girls. You know that you can beat five of them for sure. You could probably beat that sixth girl. Just go and race them. And just, you know, let's see what happens. And rather than that, she got so focused on her model that she, she didn't even to make race. the final. Yeah. She forgot to race. Yeah. You know, she was fourth in the, in the semifinal and didn't make the final yeah. and then just... You know, it's, uh, so that's what I mean. It's, it's not the same thing. We're not going to coach the, the same athlete the same way all the time, right? right? And that's a big, uh, that was a big learning, um, learning thing for me right. there. Right. Uh, I, 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 got, I got pulled away into, uh, into um, it, like, I mean, I'm, I sometimes feel like I'm in your brain, right? My brain, my brain goes <laughs> multiple directions Trust at the same me. time. So I don't know what, what the, you are not what in the my point brain. of that little story was, but... <laughs> But um, yeah, yeah. This, the point was, yeah, we always have to coach the individual yeah. in front of us, right. 
not and not just and also understanding that this is a dynamical system meaning it changes all the okay, time so i right? and this individual just because they're one way today doesn't necessarily mean they're that way tomorrow okay so we're 50 minutes into this question but i feel i need to say something oh jeez okay. <laughs> oh for those of you that are still here with us uh i, I uh <laughs> But here's the thing, right? So what, so if I, you know, to summarize what I think it means is, you know, you said, okay, drills, you know, drills are connected to Koji's rhythm. Why? Because, you know, and I said, well, how do we know that? Well, we know that because, and I loved your answer. It was like, because it's important to Koji and it's the way he thinks, right? So as a coach, what were, what, if I'm, as a coach, if I'm understanding this right, or if I have this sorted in my head right, it's like, well, we do need to go deep just because we may have the athlete in our stable that needs us to go deep, needs us to be able to go deep, right? Does that make sense, right? Like if you don't go deep, if you don't have the ability to get technical, you know, uh, or you're not in a position where you have a Koji that is, I mean, he's unusual, right? Because he's so smart and he can do it all, a lot of it himself, right? He drives a lot of that himself. But for younger athletes or, or athletes, you know, not that far advanced, I mean, you know, they, you know, they, they, need, they need that from their coach. So the coach had better have. But here's what I would say about that is that like you and I come from coaching environments where we we can't afford to only coach one way or have one tool in the box because we don't have enough talent coming through the door to be able to just sort of, you know, fit, you know, be like Glenn Mills where, you know, if you don't, if you don't react well to Glenn Mills coaching, then you go find another Jamaican coach that can, you know, that can provide you what you need. And Glenn Mills doesn't need, you know, Glenn Mills doesn't care if, if the athlete that doesn't uh, doesn't react well to a, a, a more simplified simplified presentation, let's call it, in terms of his coaching, because he, there's so much talent there coming through that. But if you're a Canadian coach, or if you're a if you're a Northern European coach where you don't have you know uh, you know quite the talent pool that you would have in say you know um, in in the U.S. or you know some of these you know, London, let's say, you know, these huge talent pools. Well, then, you you know, you do need to go deep on some of this stuff, at least have it available to you so that you can use it when it's necessary. But you just don't always coach like that. You just don't. You have to understand when and where you want to coach like that. And I, I think it's, you know, 99 times out of 100, you're not you're never going to coach as deep as your knowledge is. But you got to know when to when to pull it back. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's, that's the other part of that question, right? So in one part is, is what we're sharing. And the other part is how we're studying. And that's the whole sort of uh, talk about generalist and specialist. Right. Right. right? So what do we, you know, and, and the question is, who are the better coaches? Are they the specialists or they are the generalists? I mean, it's, so, you know, for me, you know, my, my world, my coaching world changed when I first, and we talked about this already, when I first went down to Texas and spent some time with Dan. And I remember him describing Same. coaching to me. And he said, coaching is like, you know, and this is, I don't know if these guys even 
around anymore. But you remember those guys that used to show up on the Tonight Show? They were plate spinners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they've yeah, got yeah, these the sticks. You know, six yeah. feet. Yeah, yeah, six feet sticks yeah. and a plate on top yeah. of the stick. Yeah. And you're basically spinning this plate, and yeah. you're running from plate to plate. And they've got one in each hand and on, keep, the, and on our foot. Right, and, yeah. trying to just get these plates spinning, right? And he said, coaching is like plate spinning. Yeah. And, you know, it's you've got 8, 12, 15 plates that you have to keep spinning all the time. And to, to, to continue to be able to spin these plates, you don't, you don't only know what's going on with this plate in front of you. You have to understand what all of the plates are doing and their, you know, their rotation rates to get to the right plate at the right time to continue it to spin. He said that's coaching, right? It's not just, you know, knowing mechanics. Mm -hmm. It's not just knowing physiology or energy systems, or or nutrition or therapy or strength and conditioning or what whatever your ology is. It's not, it's all of them, and understanding how all of them are moving. And then also how all of them are interacting in space and time. Right. And so for me, I've always been, that's always been my bias, right? A good coach is one that doesn't necessarily have to be deep in any of those singular things, but has to know what all of them are doing and how they're all kind of interacting at the same time, right? So it's, um, you know, and that's the systems perspective where the interactions of the component parts are, are far more important than the each individual component part themselves right um well now i'm really going to send you, know, that's, you that's, that's that's how i'm biased now i'm really going to send you down now i'm really going to set you off because uh, you know i think one of my strengths as a coach is the ability to cut out bullshit right i i i just learned to remember i said i said last time we talked you know i'm very or in the first the first discussion we had, I'm very careful about what I let into my head, right? Another way to look at that is I'm very careful about, you know, I, I filter out a lot of stuff before it even gets into my head. There's stuff I just don't worry about, right? You know who I learned that from? Charlie. That I, if, the, if I learn anything from Charlie, the, the, you know, I, I didn't know Charlie that well. I knew him well enough that he was, you know, very good to me. We had a, we had a number of one-on-ones sitting down talking about training and going over plans but if there's one thing that i learned from that guy it's that it's knowing what to apply you know what is worth worrying about and what is it you know on the other hand i i do study and study and or there was a point where i'm getting back way more into it now but there was a point where i was studying and studying and studying i mean jesus um you know, but I, I had to learn to, you know, what, what to do. And I learned a lot of that from him, not only from him, but he was that to me, that was his biggest genius. That guy was, was to, was to understand that he knew, you know, anyways. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, for sure. And that's, that's different from the system in which we all are used to mm -hmm. and what generally traditionally is we operate within, right? We live, we live in a specialist system that, you know, the educational system, for example, is set up as a specialist system where we have to make a decision on what field and what discipline to go into when we're 17 or 18 years right. old. And that, you know, by and large determines the fate of the rest of our life. Yeah, and that's getting earlier and earlier, right? by we, the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure, right? So it's this hyper-specialism has always been the goal, which is, you know, that's... that's um, and that's a totally different conversation, right? With 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 the merits and and and, and uh, problems in such a system, but 
it's definitely not the way to learn how to coach. Yeah, no, I agree. Right? And, and, and I think it's, it's going like to come around book, full circle at some point too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure it does. I and mean, it, it already is, yeah. right, with, with books like, uh, you know, my, my buddy Dave, David Epstein's Range and, and, and other books like that. And, and another book that I thought was excellent that came out in, uh, man, it might have been 2011, 2012, somewhere out there, The Neo Generalist, right? It's where, oh, you, never, where it's basically you're a generalist and a specialist at the same uh, time. Yeah. So, you know, go, understanding one or two things at depth gives you the context to understand other things, you know, at breadth, you know, so it's, you know, the, the, the real, the people who are leading their fields, right? The real good people. And and, and you can say the same same thing in our field is coaching, right? right? The best coaches are the ones that understand one or two things at real depth. You know, they're, they are experts in that and they're not experts in all of it. Mm -hmm. And they're not, but they don't just have surface level understanding of everything either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, they know one or two things really well. Yeah. Well, look and at Dan. Look know, at Dan. It's mechanics like, and like it's Dan. therapy. Yep. Right? It's, yes. Or I'd say exactly. I'd say physiology right? and mechanics. Yeah. 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 So it's you know a neo generalist is one that can can flit in between the two. Like there's times where you got to be a specialist. Right. Of course. And there's times where you have to be a generalist. Right. You know, and that's the best coaches. Yeah, totally. I so totally agree. The, and then the question the question then becomes. What does that educational profile or that system look like? You know, do we do the, all right, I'm going to know this really deep. I'm going to know that really deep. And then as I'm doing that, I'm trying to go broader and broader and broader and all of these other little things and, and connect all the dots. Or is it, I'm going to start with all of these dots and just go a little bit more deeper, a little deeper, a little deeper, a little deeper, a little deeper until I figure out which one of those dots really, really, um, you know, is, is really interesting to me and I'll go deeper on it and I'll go deeper on that. You know, and that's the question, right? It's, it's, um, that, and that's really, uh, for me, that's the most important question is, is if I'm a 20 year old coach or a 25 year old coach trying to figure out my way and I want to be an elite coach and that's my, my goal, how do I do that? Do I, do I go super deep into one or two things now and then over the course of time, you know, start learning all the other things? Or do I learn all of the things now and figure out what is most interesting to me later and go deeper on them then? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I think, yeah, well, I think desire has to be a huge part of that, right? I mean, you know, because some of these deep dives require, it's like an athlete training, right? Like without, without the desire to do it, it's not, you know, you're just not going to do it with the, with the drive or the enthusiasm that that's really needed to, you know, how did you do it? Like you were kind of a generalist from the get go, right? Yeah. Um, I went big time into physiology, you know, uh, and, um, anatomy, you know, that kind of thing. Like I got really turned on to Paul check. Okay. And I did, you know who I'm talking about, right? When I say yeah, Paul yeah, Check, yeah. right? So he's yeah. so for those yeah. who don't know who Paul Check is, you should probably check him out. He's a guy that, um, uh, basically a uh, he was the he was, a, he was the like functional a, functional exercise guy, functional right. guru back in the day. A I was, physiotherapist I was, I was, I, at a high level. I was never with a big a, fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You what? Yeah. You were not. I was never a big fan, to be honest with you. No. You know, what I mean, he's got this. He's got sort of this commercial side to him, right? But yeah, you get away from that and you get that guy in a room and 
he's unbelievable. Like, I mean, mm. I learned so much from that guy and I got, I forget how I got wrapped up, but I, I ended up taking the, the last two internships, week long internships. One was in, uh, wherever he is in Southern California. And the other was actually in Vancouver. Those are the last two, I believe that he gave himself. And I mean, those changed my coaching because I really, uh, you know, I learned so much about the body through that, um, which I think is, you know, obviously so important. Functional anatomy is at the core of that to me. Right. Um, so, you know, and that's, and I, I did for years, I studied that, um, and the other, you know, the other, the other big component to my coaching that I really went hardcore on was methodology. I just always had a big interest in it. And so between those two, I was able to write programs um, and, you know, write effective programs in both the short and long term. And also the content of that with, with my strength, you know, I was also big into, well, I mean, you could say with check also you're, that's not where I got a lot of the strength and conditioning. I got a lot of that from Paula Quinn and, you know, the, you know, the classic people at that, at that time that you would study from Zashiorsky and all of this and wherever I got that from. Um, and I, uh, yeah, those were sort of my three my three big things, and put them all together. The one the one area I would say that I would I was lacking in relative to a lot of other coaches was mechanics. But a lot of that was because I co I coached all the events, and I think that actually helped me because, and I've said this to development coaches uh, many times, you know. What I would do, because I was in a very small environment, this is kind of what I was trying to get at earlier. I was in a very, uh, I, I was in an environment that was very isolated, like Kamloops, right? It was, you know, uh, at the time around 80, 85,000 people, but in a, you know, surrounded by mountains. So it's not like, you know, the pool of athletes I had to draw from was tiny relative to what your, what it, most other coaches have. Um, so I couldn't afford to be a throws if I wanted to be successful and that's, I wanted to be successful. I couldn't afford to be only a throws coach and make everybody a thrower, right. Or be only an endurance coach and make every athlete comes into the program, try to make them into an endurance runner. I had to, you know, I had to coach in a generalist way. And then as I saw in them, you know, over years working with them through that, you know, through their development ages, what I would steer them towards what they, I thought they'd be good at. That's how I learned how to coach the hammer with Dylan. Right. So, but because of that, because I'm coaching all these different technical events, I couldn't get so deep technically into any of them. I just didn't have the time. So what I did is I would, uh, you know, in my travels and getting to know guys like Dan and Gary Winkler and, you know, boo. And, you know, I would, I would try to get out of them. I would say, look, I would say, what is the, and I, I have interviews with these, with those three in particular and others where I've actually said, you know, I've said this question for development coaches. What is the one thing I need to know? Like, what is the most important technical element that when an athlete is coming to you as a high performance coach, what do you want them to have down? Okay. Like what is the, you know, so in the hurdles with, uh, with, um, from Gary, he said, oh, simple, it's a takeoff. You have, to, you have to know, I want them to know the takeoff, right? Everything else I can deal with. But if you don't have that down right, 
you know, uh, in the sprints, what is, well, it's, it's, you know, it's shin angles into the track. How do they push? Right. I mean, wouldn't you say that that's as a, as an elite coach athletes coming to you, you know, you want them to understand you, maybe another one would be, you know, how do how to relax, you know, when sprinting or maybe it's posture. Right. But each, each event has one or two of these critical things. And that's what I focus my coaching around. And I coach them, as a, in a way, sort of a specialist generalist, right? Like, and that's all yeah. I worried about. I didn't worry about any of the other things. And I, you know, I'm, and I didn't know enough to get too, too into it. So, hey, we should probably move on to another, you know, to something else here. Or do you want to keep talking about it? <laughs> Let's just move on. Hey, listen, so what, yeah, okay. so what, what, um, so, you know, obviously with your background, uh, you know, and I think I, when I was, I was trying to stroke you there in your introduction, uh, for the first video, I was talking about, you know, your, you being at the top of, you know, these two different worlds, the strength and conditioning world and the sprint world. But so I think you're an ideal guy to ask this question. What, what do you think has been the most important advance in sports science or say training methodology or way of thinking let's call it since since you started coaching so what's what's changed since you started which would have been what in the 80s started coaching in the 80s yeah i started coaching coaching in 83 when i was 14. uh so my dad was a coach and he was a coaching coordinator of a local soccer club and uh as a 14 year old i started coaching the under 11 team now, I didn't really start coaching coaching, you know, where coaching was something I started thinking about. Yeah, the question a, wasn't what's your coaching background. The coaching was, the question was. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's context, man. Oh, context, right. You, okay. you asked me, you. the last question is when did I start co coaching? So I'm answering that okay, question. Okay, Dan Carlin. All right. Don't right. answer me. Don't ask me a question if you don't want to know the I'm answer. Just, I'm just, okay, go ahead. Take your time. No, I'm not giving that answer anymore. <laughs> So the question, the question you no, let's hear about it. Is you basically were, you, what was you started coaching no, no, at fourteen? I'm done. I'm not, no, 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 you don't. You don't get to know that answer anymore. We're we're moving on. What has been the most important advance in in training methodology or sports science over the course of my coaching career? Whether that started in eighty four or ninety four or right. 04 or fourteen. Well, that's right. pretty important because I did ask you over the course of your career. So from the eighties, and, and that's why I was answering the question oh, that way. God. But you interrupted me and told me not to. All right, so all right, I'm all right. Okay, so, so you like this is one of the questions you sent up. me, like a few weeks yeah. back, and um, yeah, I didn't know how to answer this one. So I uh, just for all the listeners, it's um, like these are difficult. Some of the questions that Derek has sent are, you know, they 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 require some forethought because they're not just simple things to think about, and you know, obviously as coaches and and you know we're we're kind of bent this way as it is, we kind of, you know, we're already fairly introspective about the things that we do. So we give some thought to what we're doing. But that doesn't mean we're thinking about everything all the time. So some of the questions that Derek has sent me are, are really challenging my ability to, 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 to think about and to really get deep into some of the things of why, you know, some of the reasons why I do things. So this one was maybe one of the hardest questions that you sent me to answer. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, and I, I was kind of thinking about this when you talked about uh, Yuri Sadiq answering the questions that basically were almost being asked in a different language because it's not the way that in, in which he sees the world. 
right? right? And you'll have seen this too, right? To you'll, have, you'll have, you'll have um, spoken at conferences and had questions at these conferences and you just, man, I, I don't, I have no idea how to answer that question because I don't think that way, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? You might think that All way. All the time. You know, with your experiences, but I don't. I have a certain set of experiences that, that you know mean that I think in a in a different way than that. So this question, you know, the most important advance in sports science over the course of my coaching career, I don't think that way. So I, I don't okay. know how to answer. Maybe it. Maybe I should have said, you in know? your opinion, like what is? Well, even then, like I, it's yeah. I, What's been the sure. most I mean, important have advance? Is an opinion. Like I mean, how are things different now than they were when you first started coaching? And what do you think? You know, right, you know, right. So that that and that's how I was going to answer okay. the question, right? So it's for for me, it's not really about what is this most important advance through the thirty years of my coaching career because that's not the way in which I operate. It's not the way I, the the lens through which I see the world. It's you know, it's not about the tools that have come into play that better inform what I do, but rather how I organize all the tools in my world that informs what I do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not, it's, 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 it's how I make sense of those tools. Right. But, you know, if you, if you had a gun to my head and you forced me to, to, to answer that question in the way that you, you meant it, it's probably, it comes down to an, a vast increase in the, uh, in our ability to access information and how that has changed the way in which I coach, but has also has changed the entire industry at large. And we talked we talked about that a little bit, uh, you know, in one of the first two conversations, right? Our access to information and how that changes everything. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we have discussed so far um, feeds into that, right? It's you know, the more access to information that you have, the more component parts in your system. And then thus the more component parts that you have to throw out of your system. Mm -hmm. So it becomes more and more challenging to get into that, you know, that, that informed simplicity, right? There's a simplicity on the other side of complexity. And that for me is, but that's been the biggest change and the biggest change to the industry as young coaches struggle with that challenge. Well, remember, I mean, you must really see this in the strength and let's call it the quote unquote strength and conditioning realm or performance. Uh, you know, what's the term that they prefer now? Uh, we, I don't even think we call it strength and conditioning anymore, but let's. No, I think we do. I mean, do it's, you, okay. you've got a perform, you've got a performance industry, right? The sport performance industry. Okay. And within that industry, there's a bunch of professions. The strength and conditioning coach is still a profession. You know, some people right. prefer to call it a performance coach or what have you. But in, in, in most instances, a strength and conditioning coach is still, still a thing. So you must see that in that area as the, the biggest changes, I would imagine, right? I mean, remember what an S&C coach used to be back when we started coaching. I mean, these are guys you wouldn't let anywhere near your, your athletes and you know and and i've probably been more critical of them than most of my colleagues when 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 speaking publicly i once called them vermin in, in a lecture in uh, in in the uk i was and i was referring to a specific type of them if you know obviously but but i really see them now as a uh, as a resource like i mean some of these guys are are like matt like, I mean, could, could you imagine a better resource, right? I mean, when he answers your, your, your messages. But. 
Yeah, it's, it's, I uh, finally got a text from him the other day, and he's asking me about you know which turntable to buy. But anyways, but I yeah, mean, I told him to reach out to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's 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 struggling with uh, he needs a turntable that plays seventy eight. Yes, yes. So I told him just to get a uh, get a Rega, a Rega. That's what I, well, that's funny because that was I I said yeah, Stu's into Regas and and you know, but I think that but Regas I don't think Regas play seventy eight. They only play thirty threes and forty. Yeah, it's very hard to find a a a turntable at that price point that at that price point yeah. that'll play a 78 but the beauty of that that turntable he's looking at is it comes with a dust cover but it also comes with a removable stylus like you can you can you can change the stylus on the cartridge and if you have four kids that's essential because they're going to destroy it right it's also got a carbon oh, he needs to, he, yeah i i think even just getting a turntable now when his kids are you know, one one of his kids is one and a half, right? Yeah, totally. totally. So I why mean, are you getting, why are you bothering, man? Yeah, I know. You like you come home one day and there'll be a pizza on it spinning around, and you yeah. know, yeah. yeah. Anyways, uh, yeah. what we yeah. oh yeah, we Don't were talking it. about uh, yeah, yeah, but, right? So, but, but I mean, these guys are that's great never been yeah for for sure. Like that's never really been an issue for me, um, and like we I started as an SNC coach in in '92, and you know with Matt and and a few others, and. It's actually what you're talking about is one of the reasons why I am no longer like an SNC coach or I'm not just an SNC coach because I, I was challenged and I struggled with trying to understand the effect that the work I was doing was having on the performance of the athletes I was working with. Right. You know, it seemed like at the time it was... It was just an add-on, right? Is all right. You go and do S and C now, right? And then I was the S and C guy, and I would do the S and C. Kind of like and the I, way they I wasn't we used to see therapy. Yeah, yeah, right. Now go get therapy, yeah. right? And but it, that was super early. It's I got away from that, you know, in the early nineties, mid nineties, right? Where it was now an essential, integrated part of the whole. Where I saw that because of the the types of athletes that I was working with at the time bobsledders and sprinters, SNC is part a big part of the program. It's not an add-on. No, right? Of course it's not, not an add-on no, for, for that because that's yeah. it should never so, be an it's add-on. It's such a big part of your performance. Yeah. I mean But but it but let's say you, you let's say you're doing the SNC program for an equestrian rider. Yeah. Okay. There yeah. You know, that's more of an add-on, yeah. right? It's got such a negligible part of the you know the overall performance of how that equestrian rider rides that you, it can be seen as an add-on. Right. So throughout my all my development of an SNC coach, because of the, the athletes I was working with, because I could see a direct connection between the work we were doing in the weight room and how they were performing on the ice or the track, I never looked at it that way. And it wasn't until I got back to the UK where I saw it that way again, because, you know, we got to the UK in 2000. Well, I got there in 2010. You got there in 2009. SNC there oh, was yeah. an add on. Totally. Right. You had the track coach yeah. or the whatever the technical coach is, and you had the S&C coaches, yeah. and never the twain shall meet, yeah. right? Yeah. Generally, the track coach, go and do your S&C, go and do your therapy. Well, that was everything my biggest was, issue in Loughborough. Everything was in its silos, yeah. right? Yeah. Everything was siloed. And, um, yeah, I, I'm, 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 glad to see, I'm glad to, or I, I think that it's, it got better over the course of the time that we were there, where it became more of an integrated piece of what we were it doing. It did in Loughborough. But, um, yeah, it's and it's... I think it's getting better, you know, the, because I, I think, you know, it's still such the SNC uh, profession is still such an immature profession, 
and it's still trying to find its way in this in, in the entire industry, right? Where does it fit and where does it mm -hmm. sit? You know, what's what's the purpose here? And it's had to change in in order to in, ensure that it continues and, 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 and is sustainable, right? So that's what you see with a guy like Matt. All right, it's I'm not happy just being in a, in a weight room, counting reps and changing weights and not really understanding how what I'm doing in here is affecting or informing the entirety of the of the performance process. So what can I do to to be a part of that? And some of them, like Matt, you know, decided to go and get PhDs, mm -hmm. and and brought and and with Matt, he simultaneously added depth to his perspective by going super deep on this one thing that he was studying through his PhD, mm -hmm. but also added breadth because he was going wider and wider and wider because his PhD was giving him now context and gave him, gave him more insight into having deeper, sorry, not deeper, more broader and wider conversations around the entirety of the team, right? So it's, um, and you've got, I think you're seeing that more and more and more now, right? Where S&C coaches, um, you know, to try to, to, to um, you know, to justify their positions, their roles in the process are, are finding other ways to do that, whether that's through a PhD like Matt did, mm -hmm. or whether that's through understanding, you know, how what they do interacts with, with uh, sports medicine and therapy and, and uh, rehab and, mm -hmm. and so on. Because now you've got S&C coaches that are rehab specialists, mm -hmm. right? You've got mm -hmm. S&C coaches that are sports science specialists. Mm -hmm. and, and so on. So it's, and I don't think we're there yet. We're still trying to figure out its way and what it means in the entirety of the system. Well, the other, but, um, the other part of that very complex puzzle is the, the influence of sport organizations and federations to force this relationship upon both the coaches and the SNC people. Right. Like that's always, that's always a big issue. Like it's, you know, they're paying these people, um, salaries and you better bloody well use them. Right. Or, and all the technology that comes with them. Now, you know, in my, in my perfect world, I would say that in most sports or in a lot of sports, particularly individual sports, you know, that really should all go through the coach. I mean, if, if in an ideal world, you know, every uh, speed skating coach would also be doing all the, all their own S and C and using, guys like Matt as um, consultants and as, um, you know, doing, you know, whatever. And then, but it's just not realistic in a lot of team sports where you got to, you know, in a lot of the sports that I'm sure that they, that, that he in particular works in where, you know, it's just not, not, you know, you know those, it's just not part of the, you know, there's, there's just no way that a, that a high level soccer coach is going to write all the strength programs for all of the, for all the soccer players. So, I mean, you know, that's, I mean, that, yeah, that, that, obvious, that goes back to sort of what we were discussing last time too. Right. And I wanted to, I'm glad we got here. Um, you know, I, I spoke about out, outsourcing our thoughts out of, you know, laziness and, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if I came across as, as accurately as I would have liked to have, um, because there are examples, multiple examples where, well, all examples, we always have to outsource some of our thoughts. We can't have a unique view on everything that we do or everything that we think. 
So for example, me as a coach, I outsource a lot of my thoughts on nutrition to John Berardi. I outsource a lot of my thoughts on therapy to Jerry Ramajita or mm -hmm. Gordon Bosworth. Mm -hmm. You know, I outsource some thoughts on other things. If I don't have the specialist expertise in it, it's the importance of building, you know, a great expansive uh, expert network. Um, so it's not it's not necessarily a bad thing to outsource your thoughts. I just uh, so I just wanted to make that clear. Um, no, no, no. I, know, and that's I, and that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just trying to say, you know, the the you know. Yeah, the, I mean, you, you, so you talked about uh, you know the the sporting organization and how that's set up, and you know they've got specialist experts in different domains that they're almost enforcing upon their coaches. And that, you know, that's the system that we walked into in the UK, right? And you could see where that then, you know, builds this, this level of sort of mistrust between everybody in that system. Because at that point, most of the SNC coaches that are working with most of the track and field coaches, for example, in the UK, know a heck of a lot more about SNC than those track and field coaches. Well, I was just going to say, right? I mean, though, yeah, there's the other the other issue there is, yeah, exactly that. It's the it's the track and field coaches who are don't even want to engage not not because they don't think they need it, but because they're afraid to reveal how little they know in that area or yeah, how bad their not, program is. That's not just, is. yeah, and that's just not the UK, and it's just not no. just s and no, no, therapy too, the right? And that's but why they end up... it was a big up, problem there. Right, and that's why it just ends up being add-ons, Yeah. right? Because there's a disconnect there between the specialists, the domain experts, and the generalists. And that's why it is important that those generalists have an understanding, at least some depth of understanding of all of the things in that system. They don't need to be a therapist. They don't need to be an SSC coach, but they need to be able to have conversations with a therapist. Totally. And they need to have enough understanding that they can have a conversation with the SSC coach. And that's, that's when the problem uh, uh, you know, gets really have you ever, difficult, really challenging. Have you ever heard me tell the story of my first year in Loughborough? So I, you know, I was the... I was Dan's position there uh, at Loughborough. I was running this center. I had about anywhere, depending on the year, what, what, we were there for four years. So depending on the year, I had anywhere from 32 to 35 staff under me. Half of them were performance uh, professionals. So, you know, therapy, biomechanists, physiologists, blah, blah, blah. And the other half were full-time coaches, whether they were national coaches or the uh, develop, not developmental, but we had a term for them, but one level down from that, sort of a more of a, uh, you know, bringing up the, the next wave of athletes. And my job was to coordinate all of that, right? Having walking in there with zero experience doing any of this, right? You know, and, and I remember the first day I walked in there, I got a set of keys and I didn't see Kevin or Charles for two weeks. I had no clue what I was doing. And the, so the first year went kind of rough. But I don't know if you were, were you in the, were you in the meeting where, where Charles sat everybody down um, in, uh, at Lee Valley and he gave a presentation on the, uh, you know, well, it wasn't really a presentation. It was sort of a st stripping down of everybody because the, he had the injury rates 
up there on there. Remember all the red. If it was it was an Excel file and it had a list of all the funded athletes. And if you were a red, you were injured and you were not training at all. We had 66% injury rate at Loughborough when I when I got there. Think about that for a second. That means two out of every three athletes was injured to the point where they couldn't train. Okay, these are the funded out. That's how bad yeah, it yeah, was, right? That, that's that's high. Yeah, yeah, that's not very and good. And so you know, and I'll, I'll I'll abbreviate the story. But essentially, what happened? My first year was was really rough there because and the, and the reason behind these injuries, we all sort of knew what it was, or at least we were starting to figure it out. Is they weren't talking to each other. The coaches, you know, the, I was in a center where all of this stuff was under one roof, whether it's biomechanics, physiology, lab, whatever. Well, that was actually down the street, but it was close enough. Uh, all the therapy was right. My, my office was connected to the therapy. They were all under one roof, but they were never talking to each other. It's what you just said. You train. Oh, oh, you're hurt. Okay, go and do your therapy. When you're healed, come back and we'll start training again. That's essentially, yep. you know, how it's done. Same with that. Same with SNC and all of that. And that was not. And I gotta say, that was not for lack of the SNC or any of those other practitioners, whether it be therapy, wanting to engage with coaches. It was these, I'll be clear on this. For the most part, it was coaches putting that wall up more than anything, right? So anyway, so we had this problem. We got this huge injury rate. And I'm the guy that's supposed to fix this, right? So after a year, it has, nothing's gone on. It's probably, I don't even know if it got worse, but it, it, it was going nowhere. Charles comes in one day, gives me a stripping down, just like takes a fucking strip out of me, man. It's just like yelling at me. And I'm like, holy shit. Like I wasn't used to that. <laughs> you know, and I, and I, uh, I was like, okay, motherfucker. Like, you know, I, 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 I went home and I was like real pissed off. And then I thought, I thought, okay, well, all right, now I'm doing this my way. So I come in the next morning and, uh, I said to Emma, my, my PA, um, there. And I said, Emma, come on into my office. She comes in my office. I says to her, look, I want, I want you to schedule a meeting with every single funded athlete and their coach and all of the practitioners that work with that athlete once a week, an hour, a 90 minute meeting every single week. I, I want them in a room. Like, I had no idea what I was going to do or say to them, but I just said, okay, I just went, I went super practical, right? I just went uber practical. I went, okay, if they're not talking to each other, I'm going to, I'm going to literally put them in a room and force them to talk to each other. And so that's what I did. And, the week before the Olympics, okay, three years, this would have, you know, so that was the first year. So three years later, the week before the Olympics, you know what the injury rate was? 6%. Six. Yeah. Went from yeah. 65 to six. And I, and I literally did almost nothing other than get them in a room. You know, it took a while because once the coaches were able to let their guard down and say, kind of like, okay, you know, let the, the um the therapist come down on the track you know and we made some mistakes so i brought some people in that pissed everybody bosworth really pissed everybody off the first time he came in because he was like you know i mean he's the greatest guy but he's so enthusiastic and of course you know the the therapy staff are getting intimidated you know by some of these you know yeah. we we tried a bit too hard in some places but overall it worked it, it it worked and they all and then they started to become a team they all started to talk and and, you know, and, and it was as simple as it, 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 this is this is not sophisticated input. This is as simple as, you know, the the physiotherapist being there during a sprint workout, 
uh, day in and day out. And, you know, at the point where an athlete's looking like, you know, the choice, the, the, not looking good and the coach has to make a decision as to oh, should I continue the therapist going oh, I don't know about that and they'd stop and you yeah. and I know that that's the critical moment that's you know that's they didn't go past that tipping point or that point where they would you know anyway so then and that's 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 how we did it, it was simple just just getting them to communicate and that's the way it has to work and so anyways I just that's my spiel on that but it's uh how did you, so you say it was that simple, just getting them to communicate. Is that just a matter of just putting them in the same place as they were working? Is it just a matter of, all right, so coach, therapist, S&C coach, athlete. When athlete does something, you guys are all there together, yeah. having conversations and watching and being a part of this entire process. Yeah, it was. It was and then when, when athlete goes into weight room, yeah, you guys aren't, aren't all going to be there at the same time all the time, but you've got to be there. You've got to understand what the load that the athlete's being put upon under in the weight room. When you're going into the, into the therapy room, coach, you need to be there. Not all the time, but you need to be there. Strength coach, you need to be there. Yeah, yeah. Is that, was it that simple for you guys? or is it, In was some more cases, it, it was that simple. But, you know, I mean, my, my forte, my, one of my, you know, as we've discussed many times, like what, one of my specialist areas is planning. So I, I ended up, I put this huge big screen TV in my office and every, and when we met for that hour and a half, I would, I would, uh, I put their plan up on the, on the screen. I'd put their weekly plan or whatever. And I would, I would use that as a, as a, as an instrument for discussion. So I would say, okay, where are we in the plan? Okay. Is this a low? Okay. How's he doing with this load? Blah, blah, blah. And I just made sure every. So what I, what I'm hearing here is you it's it's the 66 down to six percent is all down to you, talking about programming with the coaches in in your office. Absolutely, absolutely. I yeah. was yeah, yeah 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 no no yeah. no. I mean I, honestly I was I was in a lot of ways I was I was shitting myself because I really didn't know how anybody was going to react to this. Um, but you know after I, after Charles took that took that strip out of me I was like okay well, but you know that that first year I was trying to I was trying to run that center the way I thought Charles wanted me to run that center as opposed to me running it using my own natural tools which you know work with some people and don't work with others but using my own natural tools to 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 do it my way and my way is always the simplest way right it's always just the it's just I get in a room and let's hash this out and let's see what comes out of it. It didn't work for everybody, but it worked for most people, right? And it was just that yeah. that's mm -hmm. all it was. It, eventually, it's like a Joe Rogan podcast, man. Eventually, they all let their guards down and they start talking, right? You can't mm -hmm. stay in the room long, so for that amount of time, week in and week out, and not at some point break down and have a real conversation with the person across the, across the desk from you. That's exactly what it was. That's exactly how it happened. That was one front of it. The other front was through those conversations, the practitioners ended up on the track during, in workouts as much as possible. Not all of them. They couldn't with their schedules, but as much as possible. And that, that, that helped as well. I mean, whether any of them ever retained any of that after we left, I don't know. But, I mean, you know, in, in retrospect, we needed to be there eight years. Because it took us four years to get to the point where, where they could actually 
where they could start trading for an entire year and do and and actually implement specific workloads throughout the year and not and not get hurt. That happened the year of the Olympics. I'm surprised we we did it we were, we did as well as we did at the Olympics because it was all about you know I think I think they expected I think Charles expected you know rightfully that that we were going to fix everything in the first six months like you know we were going to get a grip on all these people and they and they were you know everything was going to start you know everybody would be rolling along at a, at a at the right pace six months into it and then we'd have three three and a half years to get ready for the olympics that's not what happened when when are you getting charles on the pod yeah i gotta get him on man that will that'll be fantastic yeah that'd be a great conversation mm-hmm. yeah that would be awesome oh he'll do it he'll he, he would love to. oh i would oh for sure oh my would. god we yeah. yeah he's he's hilarious i've had a you know him and i've kept touch quite quite a bit yep. we're yeah yep. he's become a good friend he and i you know him and kevin i mean i've been lucky man i've i've worked under some really good leaders man people that really mm-hmm. understood how to lead now those two guys man you know, one, one thing, I mean, not to go on a, on a leadership tangent, but watching those two guys work together was one of the greatest gifts, professional gifts I've ever gotten because talk about two totally different personalities, two mm-hmm. totally different leadership styles, yet those guys had so much respect for each other and the way that they, the way that they, uh, yet they were on the same page, like they were, they, their vision was, was essentially the same in a lot of ways, right? And to watch those two guys work together, I mean, it was it was really good. I learned a lot. I learned so much in that in in Britain. I mean, I was glad to get the hell out of there when I left, and but I, I look back on it with much fonder memories now than I did, you know, say a month after I'd left. Right? <laughs> but that's because we were also stressed out, right? We were also stressed out after after all of that. Oh my god! I wasn't stressed out. I had the greatest job of everybody there. Uh, my job was perfect. Well, I like you guys had the leadership roles. I had just a coaching role. I'd, I'd get in there every morning at nine. You know, I'd I'd, I'd be out by two. I'd get on the tube, go into central London, sit in a coffee shop, oh my God. read and drink coffee, Dude. and you know, walk the streets of London. It was I had a great job. I lived man. in. I, I, I love I loved my three and a half years. There. I lived in Great Britain for four years. Did not go to one show. That's all I need to say. Yeah, that's not that's not good. No, no. Yeah, that's not good. Hey, so uh, let's yeah. let's uh, that's enough of that. Let's uh, that was that was good. Um, oh well, my answer to that question actually, so you know, in terms of advancing sports science, I to me clearly it's the shift to year-round specific workloads, right? Like you know, more and more coaches are getting away from the old Matt Biev model of you know. Uh, high volume to low volume, low intensity to high intensity, you know, the old, you know, huge waves and more towards the, you know, as, as you know, the model that has specific workloads being implemented earlier and earlier in, in the annual plan, if not all year round. So not that we need to get into that, but I mean, just for the record, that was, that would, that would would be the biggest thing to me. Yeah, I, I totally misinterpreted what you were trying to ask in that question. Like, I, my brain went a totally different way. Um, if I take, I think you just confused me by putting in there sports science. If you just said, what's the most important change in training methodology or way of thinking over the course of the last 20, 30 years, that, 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 yeah, that's a different answer. 
So it's all. So my I fault. didn't even think that way until you what you just said. So your shitty and answer. And I agree is my with fault. that. So the last twenty, the last it's, forty yeah, minutes. Yeah, it's, it's your, it's your, right. Okay. It's your garbage question. Right. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, so yeah, my apologies. We can, we can, we can get into that if you like. Um, well, I mean, don't you? But think yeah, that's that. That would be for sure. I, I agree 100% with that, especially in in. But I, I agree with that in one sense, and in another, I don't. I mean, it's you know, I think we're the view that we see. The world is is, is such a small piece of it. Hmm. And I think you'd be surprised at how much of the world outside of the our little view is still operating that way. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, no, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. You're right. You're right. You're right. But I mean, at least it's there. <laughs> at least you know there is a there is a significant por- you know of the people that rely on. Per- you know, have to perform well in order to survive, to keep their jobs, right? This this is where this has been going. Not all of them do it either, but I see a lot of them have been, you know, that shift has taken place, right? And it was just the evolution of, you know, the, the, the really high thinking coaches or really creative coaches, you know, starting in the probably the late 70s, 80s, started to questioned that model and started saying to themselves look you know why am i waiting until uh you know uh, the last two months of the of the of the of the training year to be to start doing all of this specific work why can't i why can't you know they started bumping it up earlier and earlier so that you know uh, competitive phase or specific training phase that used to be you know right after the gpp and then, you know, SPP, it started to, you know, that started to grow and take over, right? And that's, um, and that's how we ended up with this, you know, these, these complex methodologies or vertical integration or what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, like, I mean, that's, that's really interesting, right? And, um, and in track and field, in, in sprinting specifically, I wonder how much that's changed over the course of time. I think it has a little bit, but I still think you're, you've got a lot of, you know, quote unquote, old, old school linear traditionalists that, you know, begin the, the training season with significant amounts of, of slow volume work and transition into, you know, sort of faster uh, low volume work over the course of time. Um, you know, you know, you look at the Jamaican program. The Jama- Jamaican program is still a ton of. It's, it's very traditionally ran still, right? It's not significantly different than what is it was a decade ago, and there's a lot of slow tempo, l- big volumes in the fall, uh, right through to sort of January, February. We start spiking up, and it's it's still a lot of work, right? And I and I give the example here, and this sort of talks to what you wanted to talk about next too. Uh, so it might be a neat, uh, you know a neat transition. I coach um, a South African sprinter named Anasil Jobadwana. So I, I coached him in 2015, 14-15, uh, and he won um, world championships uh, bronze medal. He went 1987 in the 200. And then we had a bit, bit of a falling out the following year, and I didn't coach him for the next few years. And so he sort of hopped around and went from program to program and didn't, didn't enjoy a lot of success. And then in the 18-19 season, uh, he joined uh, Coach Daryl Anderson at TCU. And, and Coach Anderson coaches uh, Ronnie Baker. Okay. 
And you know, he's had a lot of success as, as a coach. And obviously Ronnie Baker is a stud. You know, he's, right. he's an elite, elite sprinter with super mechanics. Like, just like, I, I love how that guy runs. I mean, if, for me, that guy's, you know, the best looking sprinter on the planet right now. I just, uh, mm. I, how he accelerates, how he, how he continues to climb through his acceleration. Is this how the guy that kind of came out a couple of years ago, broke through a couple of years ago? And yeah, just, yeah, like, well, he ran 640, relatively right? Un- Yes. Yeah. Okay. I remember yeah, he, him. Yeah. He, he, he broke through Very indoors. Exciting. Yeah. And he was always seen as, all right, this guy's a great starter, but he's got no gears, right? And he's just, you know, he, but that year, you know, the year that he ran 640, and he ran, I think he ran 640 twice and a bunch of 640 mids, and, and then came out. And at 60 meters, when I was expecting this guy to just start, you know, struggling. He continued to climb and continue to go, and I think he ran, ended up running 984 or something that year. And you know, he, I think he got hurt. You know, at the end of the, maybe I might be conflating years. This could have been 2017 is when he really broke through, and he got hurt at the end of the indoor season, and we didn't really see him again until late in the outdoor season, and he still looked great. Like he looked really good. And anyway, so you know, just to get back to what I was talking about. So Coach, Coach Anderson at TCU was coaching, you know, among, amongst other sort of post-grads, um, you know, Anasso um, mm-hmm. and, and, um, and Ronnie Baker. Now, Ronnie's, you know, Ronnie might be 5'11", might be 6 foot, pretty muscular, heavy, you know, heavy set muscular guy. And Anasso's 6 foot 2", 155 pounds, super elastic, really wiry, sort of a, what we'd call a fascially driven guy. Um, they trained with the same program, you know, so this very traditionalist, you know, a lot of volume in the fall, like big volumes, you know, 800 meter runs, 1,000 meter runs, you know, 600 meter uh, breakdowns, you know, repeat 300s, repeat 400s, so on and so forth. Not a lot of speed work. You know, and a speed session would be, you know, maybe 150s, for example, in, in 15.5 or 16 flat. You know, not, not fast for, a, for an elite male sprinter. But that's still and, pretty quick. I mean, now, you, is that on, would that be on the track in spikes or we talk? Yeah, about, that would be yeah, on track in spikes. So that yeah. would be like a speed session, right? And that's, right. that's not fast. Like I've, I've had guys go, you know, 14.3, 14.4, 14.5. Okay. So it's like okay. 16 flat isn't fast. Right. Um, not, not for not for guys at that level, and you know, a long story short, like like Ronnie, I think ran really fast indoors. Um, actually, no, I think he got hurt that year. Uh, this this was eighteen nineteen, but Anasso comes out, and I think his first, the first time that I saw him that year. No, he he opened up at um, at, at Austin Relays, t- sorry Texas Relays, and ran twenty point eight eight with a 4.4 tailwind hmm. that's really yeah. bad really yeah. bad right <laughs> i know yeah really bad so that's a yeah. second off of his pr and he's got a 4.4 behind him right and then i saw him the next week at um at our meet not not our meet but the meet here in in phoenix uh at the, the sun angel classic and he ran 100 and 200 and he ran 1072 or 1074 in the 100 and 21.4, 21.5 in the 200. Mm-hmm. This wow. is doing the same program that over the course of the last five years had led to 
the third fastest 60 meter runner of all time in Ronnie Baker and a guy that just had, had ran 984. You know, right. so it's it just it 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 just goes to show, right? And it's the it's so you know what works, quote unquote, with each individual athlete. It's so hard to determine that going in. Mm -hmm. All right, here's mm -hmm. a program that's worked in all aspects for this guy to run 640 and 984, and now here's another elite sprinter comes in the door and gets a second slower over the 200 meters. Right. Right? Right. And yeah. so this traditional, what you talked about, this traditional Matveyev type GPP, you know, big, big volumes, and, you know, in the front end of the year and start doing more specific work in the middle of the year and then do more, you know, pre, you know, do real specific work later in the year. That work, that works great for the Jamaican guys, most of them. It worked, it worked great for What's Ronnie Baker. What's your opinion on that? Why? It did nothing for Inasso. It, it you right. know, it, that was, that was the, you know, I don't, I don't know. You know, and this is no no affront upon Coach Anderson. Like he's an he's an elite, successful coach, right? He coaches the right. third fastest guy in history over over sixty. It's just right. this athlete didn't it didn't fit. You know, it's I, I'd be you know if Anasso you know, and I and I joke about this now because Anasso's back with us now. That's why I know all this. You know, I joke that Anasso can lie on the couch for six months and go out and run twenty one four. Yeah, you know that's, that's so it's this. It's not only did it not make him faster, but that type of program for him specifically actually made him slower. So it's it, that really interests me, right? And you ask me why, and I just I don't know if I've got a great answer to that. You know, that's other than it's coaching is phenomenological, right? It's not objective. It's all about how you know where it's where we understand the world as it's interpreted through our own individual consciousness. And we, we don't give that the respect that it deserves and requires. Number one, right? So it's, it's the psychology of that is so important. So, uh, you know, Ronnie, that's Explain all that he's known. Explain that a little more to me. You just yeah, went right so, over my head there. Okay, so Ronnie, that's all he's known. That is, you know, from a phenomenological right. standpoint, that's all he knows. He, he got fast. He started feeling fast. He started feeling world-class through this system. And he then uh, ties in that feeling of fast with this system of, of being fast. Mm -hmm. Where Anasso got fast, faith, he started right? feeling fast. You know, he started tying in his, that feeling of being fast with doing something that was totally different, that work that he did with me in 2014-15, okay. right? So he's always, and this could, you know, some of this is conscious, but much of it is subconscious, right? When you start, first start, start feeling world-class at something or elite at something, there's, you always bias towards the type of work that you were doing when you first started feeling that way. Of course, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, for example, when, you know, this was my biggest struggle in the UK coaching Dwayne Chambers, Marlon Devonish, Christian Malcolm. But all three of those guys were in their 30s when I started coaching them. All of them biased towards the work that they were doing when they first started feeling fast when they were 17, 18, 19, 20. We know that what that type of work in the UK was then. You know, that was big volumes. It was, you know, very different from what I was trying to get across to them. So it's always a struggle, you know, both, you know, uh, from talking to them, 
you know, outward, an outward communication struggle, but also a subconscious struggle from, from their perspective. Because they're now doing work that doesn't internally feel like, you know, what, what it is to them to mean and to feel fast. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, with, uh, with Anasso. Anasso first, like I said, first started feeling fast by doing under-distance work. The, the, the longest run that we did in all of 2014-15 was a 150. And that's, we didn't, never went up to the, the race distance. We didn't do any over-distance work. We did a lot, of, a lot of bounding, a lot of acceleration work, a lot of top-end work, and we did some you know, specific endurance work around 120 to 150. And that was it. You know, and he, bro- he broke through that year. So that's what he biases towards. So that's what, you know, you know and, 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 and then the opposite of that you know, is the guys like Ronnie Baker or Usain Bolt or, you know, all of the Jamaicans down there, you take a Usain Bolt out of that system at, at, say, 24 or 25, and you put him into a system like that I run, you know, sort of, uh, you know, a, a more of an intensity system, a, a nervous system system. How's that going to work? Right? Well, that's it's- what I'm thinking, right? So, I mean, is this because these athletes in this Jamaican system are so god-awful gifted? They have nervous systems that are in such have so much speed reserve let's call it okay like there's just so they could just move so fast that you know to actually try to tap into that too too much is going to do more harm than good right in order you know i'm being very you know i'm, I'm you know i'm being very uh um simple in my analysis here but and, you know, they get away with it because, you know, they, they are basically just sort of fulfilling, ticking all the other boxes. But they're so good at those, those one or two boxes that they, they ticking them actually can cause more damage. Or if you tick them, you got to tick them so carefully, you know, is that, is yeah, that well, what we're talking about? Or, or right. you know, and, and it's just simply a matter of talent when, you know, again, back to what we were discussing before, if you're Glenn Mills and you're in Jamaica, talent's not in short supply, right? So pretty, so you can run every single athlete that's going to come through your doors uh, through that program and you're going to be successful and a lot of them won't. But again, coach, if you're in, you know, you're coaching in Norway or uh, Calgary, Alberta, or Kamloops, British Columbia, maybe you don't, you know, you, you have to be, you know, you know, the athletes that are going to come through your door are not so gifted neurally, let's say that way in, in this. Yeah, well, that's the, example, yeah, right? that's, that's and, the thought experiment to run, right? So is if you had, if you, if you had the opportunity to replay the development of the Usain Bolt from the age of 14, and rather than running a more traditional um, program, um, he did a you know more specific work earlier, um, you know, and, and not just him, but the entire system then gets set up that way because obviously it all it all feeds itself because all of the athletes that come after a Usain Bolt see the success of a Usain Bolt with this system, so they mm-hmm. they psychologically bias towards that stuff you know, uh, as it goes and as it builds as well. So if you, if the system was, was the exact opposite of what it is or what it has been, what would we have seen? Right? So that's, that's, that's the question, right? Would we see a world record that's 938 instead of 958? I don't know. Um, I, I, I tend to, you know, 
I, I ask those <clears throat> excuse me, those questions all the time, that question that you just asked. You know, what is it about that that has led to, you know, system, you know, systemic success over the course of 15 years? Or what led to systemic success for the course of five or six years that now we don't see that same success within the system? You know, and is, have they made changes in that Jamaican system now that we're not seeing the success that we did from, you know, 03 to, to 09, for example? Yeah, and the, and the other, I mean, I don't know if this applies to that example so much because they have such a long tradition now of pumping out these athletes. I mean, they've been doing it for, what, 15 years where they, you know, since they, 20 years since they took over, basically, in the sprint world and... And, you know, because before that they weren't, they weren't as big a power. They had, you know, Hazley Crawford and, you know, athletes that did yeah, but, very but, well. But, but they're not anymore like either. A, right. Right. It's, it's, right. It was, that's what, that's my point. It was, it's a, it's a fairly short window. It was six or seven years and that's really it. You know, and right now it's, you know, obviously you've got the two girls that are, that are very, very elite, but you know, the Jamaican men right now are just, you know, they're kind of where the Jamaican men were pre-Asafa. Right. Right. You so. Know? So the thing, you know, I mean, so the question I always ask in these situations, and there's a couple of questions I, I'd ask, but the first one is, you know, you hear all of these stories. You hear all of these anecdotes of the volumes and the type of workloads and that. And, you know, I don't think you're going to get around the type of work they're doing. I don't think that that's, you know, the, the type of the work is the type of the work. But in terms of volumes, I mean, I know a lot of anecdotes like that where athletes in those situations self-dose by, you know, they're not really doing as much as, as is, um, you know, as, as the rumors suggest, right? They're not showing up as much or they're just feigning injury for whatever reason. And they're, and they're getting, they, they understand how to dose themselves in a program that may be considered quote unquote, a high volume program or, you know, a high volume, low speed program to a low volume, high speed program. But, you know, we hear these stories of these crazy volumes and things like that. And I just, I guess my point is I just often wonder, you know, what exactly is the athlete experiencing in those programs, right? We have the same thing in throws. The thing, you know, the, the, the same thing is in throws. It's about except, you know, uh, uh, um, it's not tempo running. It's maximal strength, right? It's mm, weight room, yeah, work, yeah. Right? right? It's the same right. thing, right? Right. So, you know, you hear these stories of these, these guys that are, you know, Olympic medalists in the shot that did insane amounts of lifts and, and, you know, but uh, how true are the stories? Right. And, and I'm sure they're true to some degree. I mean, they, you know, and, and, but how much of it, you know, how much did they actually do? Right. And, and, you know, and, and then how much, you know, did, did it actually contribute to their success? It obviously contributed, but we don't know how much. And we don't know what would have what would have gone on uh, with the, with a different program. Yeah, yeah, you can't you can't run run the counter example simultaneously, unfortunately. Um, yeah, you know, I, I had this conversation with uh, with with Les actually yesterday, um, and this is this is when we started talking about you. Is this is one of the conversations we had? I, I believe in Portugal. Now I was talking to you about the Bondarchuk system, and this you coined this. I don't think it's a Bondarchuk term, 
but you, you coined something that sort of sat with me ever since. It's the compression of specific abilities. Yeah. And I think I asked you, what's, you know, if you had to boil down the Bonacek system to one singular thing that makes it you know, what it is, that's what you told me. It's the compression of specific abilities. So it's, it's can you do the specific work in finite time? And it's maximizing the amount of, the amount of um, opportunities that the athlete has to work in this very specific way in a finite amount of time. And I, th and I started thinking about like, how does this apply then to, to sprinting? And, and you look at you know, these volume programs and sprinting is a very specific skill, mm -hmm. extremely specific. You, and you, if you break it down, right? So you're striking the ground at two to three times body weight, uh, you know, somewhere between six and 12 inches in front of your center of mass. You're amortizing through the ankle, knee, and hip joints. You're, you're, you're rotating around the, the, the hip axis and the shoulder axis as, you, as, you, as, you, as the center of mass translates across the, 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 the foot. And then you, you toe off and you do that over and over and over and over and over again. Now, that's, we can say that that is very different at 9 meters a second than it is at 12 meters a second. But there's still, it's... It's not that different. There's a lot of real similarities between that. So that for me is a pretty, you know, specific ability that these volume-based programs, these tempo-based programs, these, you know, whether it's extensive, intensive, or whatever, get that the more, um, you know, intensity-based uh, programs don't have. And that's a, that's a motor learning effect, right? If you're doing a volume pro a program where you're having 3,000 meters of tempo or 5,000 meters of tempo every week, add up the amount of steps, the amount of specific opportunities to practice that really specific skill within that finite period of time. And then maybe there's a reason why the Jamaicans just look so much yeah, more are fluid. They, are they, are they, is, it, is it effective practice in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of skill? Well, that's the question, right? I, uh, what I'm saying is maybe that's where that's maybe that's the reason why they do look look so fluid and look so skillful. Mm. The, the the coaches are just leaving them alone to figure out this pretty specific task in a way that just makes sense to them, and they're just giving them opportunities to practice it over and over and over and over and over again in what we think is a non-specific way, but when you actually break it down mechanically, it's pretty specific. You know the yielding and amortization of these joints over the course of somewhere between you know uh, you know whatever it is nine 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 um, nine thousandths to to eleven hundredths of a, of, a, of a second or whatever um, that's pretty specific, right? And that's when I start thinking about why dribbles work so well for us as not only just a rehab tool but a performance tool, a training tool. It's the same thing, I think. And I think that's where where, where you ask is if is it is tempo is doing that really low you know low intensity high volume work is that the most efficacious way of doing it i don't think it is you know i think like a dribbles if that's if that's what we're getting if that is the the um um the 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 if that's the reason why a high volume program works is because of the motor learning effect let's take away the kind of the somewhat sloppy tempo running and do way less sloppy dribbles and get the same amount of step opportunities mm -hmm. and with the same then the same motor learning effect 
And I just look at some of the examples that we've had of, com of guys coming off of dribble programs that move into plan A programs and just look and feel so much better than when they, when they went into the dribble program. You know, for, you know it's, uh, the example that I talk about a lot is, is Christian Malcolm when I got there in 2010. You know, Dan had him dribbling. Um, and then all we did is we, he dribbled for another four months or so. And then he got on the track, did a few sprints, went to, uh, went to uh, British Trials, made the European team, went to Europeans and got a silver medal, and got a silver medal at, um, at Commonwealth that year as well. And 90% of his running opportunities that year were dribbles. Right, you know, and right. it's, it's, I, I just well, think, like, what, well, what is it about be, that? What is it about right. that? I think it's... He just, I hear what you're saying. He, so you're effectively working on the skill, you know, uh, doing enough. It's specific enough to be developing, say, not just the skill, but a lot of the passive tissue requirements, let's say, you know, like, um, you know, they're not... If, if they do enough of that type of stuff, they can tolerate some sprinting without blowing up right away when they when they finally do step on the track. And if you can get past that, if you could if you can make that work, the big advantage to it, the way I would see it, is that you haven't you haven't run the risk of frying the nervous system ever, right? Right? Because the one thing that we do know about step rate, and frequency uh, in terms of how how a how an athlete moves their legs is that your step frequency your step rate does not change much right right that's determined that's determined by the time you're what five six years old and at least I remember having a big discussion with PJ about this um, so that's where my knowledge of this so correct me if you think I'm wrong but your step rate really doesn't change the only thing that changes after for, for the rest of your life, it pretty much doesn't change. The only thing that changes after is your, is your length of your, uh, is, is the length of your stride, right? Do you see where I'm going with this? So if that, if that step rate, the frequency is really a not, it's really a, a, uh, it's, it's, it's highly untrainable, right? Not like strength. Then the situation that you just described would be a pretty ideal system. Because you're you are working on the mechanic with, through all these, uh, what you you know through all these repetitions, the dribbles or you know the tempo running. You are you are working on the specific strength, but you're not actually going to the point of tapping into the nervous system. See, one one of the things I think with a lot of sprint programs do um, is they tap into it too much all the time right and the the real you know and some athletes need that because they're they're uh you know they're not they're not the neural beast the high 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 end neural beast but that the the truly elites are but for the truly truly elites you know i mean i'm open to that that thought i think and that and that you know maybe you don't need to go there all the time i don't yeah, know i mean a, a general heuristic that i use is the the greater your ability to tax your quote unquote nervous system the less you need to actually go and tax exactly. it yeah. exactly exactly yeah yeah well i mean that's i mean any speed power coach worth the damn will tell you that i mean if the the, the you know the more force and speed an athlete can generate the easier they are to fry Right. You know, so anyways, so that well, that's interesting. So uh, that is a conversation that could go on forever. Right. I mean, it, it and that's uh, and I guess I will just 
well, and my part of this discussion on this is that, you know, that's why recipe programs and recipe systems, they, they work if you're in an environment where you have enough athletes coming through the door that fit into that model, right? And then, and then you know, you're super successful. But like I've been, I've said a number of times now, for those of us in environments that where, you know, we don't have that talent pool or we don't have, you know, the, the warm weather, whatever the hell it is, you know, we, we, we can't afford to do that. We have to, we have to take the athletes we have and make them successful. And that, you know, using another way, we can't use those recipes. We need to look at the athlete, determine what is needed and build a program around them. Yep. I think that's a, that's a perfect way to finish because that's a, that's a great last word. Are we done for yeah, today? That's, 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 you want to end? We're at two. We're at two yeah, ten. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> dude, we only got like two <laughs> questions done. Three. Okay. Well, let's. Yeah. Let's, Andreas is not going to be yeah. happy, man. You, you, you know, it's uh, of the two hours and ten minutes. It's probably two hours and eight minutes of Derek rambling. Hey, I think I did a pretty good job this time, <laughs> Andreas. Listen, buddy. I love you, but come on. Man, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure he, he is, uh, I'm sure he'll be happy with my performance. You think? All right, well, we'll get a, you know, when, when it comes out, I'll, I'll be, I'll be uh, sure to get his feedback. And what, how do you want the feedback? Do you just want a straight up ranking out of 10 or, you know, a, uh, like a letter, a letter grade <laughs> each time? No, man, I want, I want, I want hardcore. He can let me have okay. it. Man. All right. You should see this Alain, 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 Guttinger. Okay. Whatever his name yeah, is, that, that, uh, however I pronounce your name, I know what your name is, Alain. But he's uh, he's fantastic. I love it. I love I love you know. Listen, man, I took I took an in your face fuck you stripping down from Charles Van Comedy yelling at me once. If I can handle that, I can handle Andreas. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta you can't just give it. You gotta be able to take Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, All right. Hey, listen, thanks, buddy. Uh, I look forward to our next one. It was really good. All right. Take it easy.